Welcome back to another episode of the Ninja Nerd Podcast. Thank you for coming by again. Thank you for listening. We really do appreciate the support, and we are hoping that all of these episodes and all of the the resources that we put out is helping you all. But first, we got to talk about hyponatremia. It's going to be a good one today. Please go on ninjanerd.org. Don't forget, grab your subscription, get your notes and illustrations, follow along. It helps us out, and we really do hope that it's helping you out. It's why we do it. So please go ahead and consider that. But again, without further ado, let's get right into hyponatremia and not waste any time. Hyponatremia is sometimes a little bit of a beast. It can get a little overwhelming with the number of causes that, that hyponatremia has. So we have to first boil down what are the causes of hyponatremia and really relate that to the overall pathophysiology. So Zach, we hope you uh, can do this. It's hopefully not too much of a big <laughs> task for you, right? I'm going to do my best. Of course you will. <laughs> so hyponatremia, is, it is one of my like favorite kind of electrolyte disorders to work up. So working in an ICU setting, you commonly see this. Um, and so I think it's really important to have a very straightforward kind of like nice look into it. And so here's the way I evaluate it. It may be evaluated in different textbooks differently from resource to resource. I just find it easier in this particular way. If someone has true hyponatremia, we'll talk about if they don't have true hyponatremia a little bit later in the diagnostic steps. But if a patient has true what's called hypotonic hyponatremia, meaning that you check their serum osmolality, and when you check their serum osmolality, it's less than 280. Some resources will say less than 285 um, milliosmoles, and their serum sodium is less than 135 in combination with that. So two factors there. They have a sodium less than 135, and their serum osmolality, which is a measure of their tonicity, is less than 280. Some resources less than 285, meaning that they are of a hypotonic tonic hyponatremia that is a real hyponatremia we'll talk a little bit later that there's something called isotonic and hypertonic hyponatremia and those are not real they can be pseudo or artifactual and we'll get to that later but <clears throat> let's say that we work the patient up we get a BMP on the patient when they come into the hospital. Sodium is less than 135. We should be able to grade their hyponatremia, right, based upon the number. So numbers actually are important here, and I would take it into consideration. So if I have a patient who has a sodium between 130 and 134, that's that's a mild hyponatremia. I'm not getting too excited about that one. If I have a patient with a sodium between like 120 to 1, you know, 29. <clears throat> that might get me a little bit more excited. I might want to be a little bit more on the ball on that patient's sodium. And if I have a patient less than 120, I'm very nervous. I got to focus. I got to figure out what the heck is going on and act quickly because this hyponatremia can get out of hand and get ahead of you quickly. So that's important to remember. So we have a patient with one of those sodium values less than 135. We check a serum os, and that serum osmolality shows true hypotonic hyponatremia. This is real. It's real. You got to focus on what is the cause. So how do I do this? Once I've done this, I get my uh, BMP. I check a serum os right away, and I've confirmed that it's hypotonic hyponatremia. I think t- here's where I, I bifurcate my path. I say, is ADH on or is ADH off? 
So ADH meaning the antidiuretic hormone. So antidiuretic hormone is a hormone made by your posterior pituitary, technically hypothalamic, you know, you have the neurons that extend from the hypothalamus to the posterior pituitary and it releases ADH, goes to your distal convolute, I'm sorry, your collecting duct actually, reabsorbs water there and then helps to be able to make concentrated urine. So it reabsorbs water into the bloodstream, Okay from your kidneys. The reason why ADH is produced is kind of a twofold reason. One is the patient's effective arterial blood volume or their blood volume in general is lower. So if a patient has a low blood volume, that would be a trigger for them to produce ADH. A second reason is that their plasma osmolality, right? Their plasma osmolality in these particular situations is kind of on like it's it's a little bit odd. So in other words, when a patient has a plasma osmolality that's like really high, it tells me that the patient is really kind of very maybe like water is a little bit lower within their vascular system. And ADH doesn't like when there's not a lot of water in your vascular system. So it may reabsorb more to bring the actual serum osmolality kind of down a little bit. So whenever ADH is produced, it's produced again for two particular reasons. One is a very high serum osmolality. One is a very low effective arterial blood volume or total blood volume in the body. And there's actually one more, and that's usually due to the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. So I would say it's due to serum osmolality, it's due to blood volume, and it's due to renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. Well, here's what I want you to think about. If a patient is hypovolemic, if they're hypovolemic, their blood volume is going to drop. If their blood volume drops, what that will do is, is that will stimulate the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system because if you have low blood volume, you're probably not going to perfuse your kidneys as well. Plus, it's going to stimulate ADH production. When ADH is produced, it'll then go to your kidneys and reabsorb lots and lots of water to be able to improve your blood volume, right? That should make sense. Here's the thing, though. If you increase your water reabsorption to improve your blood volume, what happens to the amount of water in your bloodstream now? It goes up. If the water in your bloodstream starts going up, guess what that will do to the amount of sodium present in the blood now? It's going to dilute that sodium a little bit and it's going to drop your serum osmolality. So you see what I'm saying here? This is really, really important. I have a patient comes in, they have hyponatremia, sodium less than 135. Their serum osmols is low. The reason their serum osmols is low could be due to what? Having a hypovolemia that triggers ADH production, ADH reabsorbs water into their actual bloodstream and dilutes their sodium. So if you have a lot of water in your vascular system in comparison to the sodium, if the water is relatively more than the sodium, it's going to dilute the actual tonicity and again, cause a hyponatremia. So the question is, is what causes hypovolemia then, right? This could be due to renal losses of water or fluid, or it could be due to extra renal losses of water and fluid. So if you're just pissing out tons and tons of fluid, that's going to cause you to become hypovolemic. Well, what would cause you to pee out tons and tons of fluid, my friends, if a patient's on diuretics? So if they're taking diuretics and maybe they're just a little bit over diuresis from their loop diuretic or thiazidiuretic, that could cause that. Second thing, if they have something called Addison's disease. So Addison's disease is a disease where they do not produce enough aldosterone. What does aldosterone do, my friends? 
It's responsible for reabsorbing sodium and water and then excreting a patient's type of potassium, right? So if you're not releasing aldosterone, you won't reabsorb sodium, you won't reabsorb water, and you'll lose that sodium and you'll lose that water into the urine. And that can make the patient hypovolemic. It also can directly drop their sodium. And another disease that people don't think is real, it's real, cerebral salt wasting syndrome. So cerebral salt wasting, you see this a lot in big subarachnoid hemorrhages, um, especially aneurysmal, where their sympathetic nervous system is altered and they aren't able to really trigger that kind of renin angiotensin aldosterone system properly. And so they lead to a lot of sodium and water loss from their urine, very large volumes of sodium and water loss. And that would be another potential trigger. All right. So you're either peeing out tons of sodium and water via what situation? Diuretics, Addison's, or cerebral salt wasting. What if it's not your kidneys that are causing a lot of this volume loss that's making you volume depleted and triggering ADH production? What if it's an extra renal source? So what if you have a poonami going on? In other words, you're just pooing all the time and losing tons of fluid from your GIT. So excessive diarrhea or you're vomiting out your mouth hole constantly and losing volumes of fluid that way. So it could be vomiting. It could be diarrhea. Believe it or not, also severe burns. So if someone developed like very like <laughs> like my best buddy over here uh, right next to me when we were in Hawaii, he decided to get second degree burns on probably more than 75 percent of his body. He's making it seem worse than it actually was. <laughs> I wasn't too bad. <laughs> but if you do get really bad sunburns or like physical burns where it actually literally leaches and yanks water from your actual skin cells and you don't have that barrier to maintain that water balance, that can really cause a patient to become volume depleted. So be careful with that with the burn patients. Um, another one is pancreatitis. So pancreatitis causes a lot of third spacing. So you actually cause a lot of interstitial fluid edema as well. But those would be things to think about. So hypovolemia, whether it be kidneys losing sodium and water, but a lot more water in this case, in that situation or extra renal. So your skin, your, uh, you know, from the skin, from your actual GIT, you're actually losing a lot of sodium and water that way. Those are going to lead to a hypovolemia, trigger ADH production. When ADH is produced, it'll reabsorb lots of water. If you reabsorb water, you're going to have more water now in your vasculature than sodium, dilutes your sodium down and causes hyponatremia. There's another interesting one. So these patients are also what we call a low effective arterial blood volume, meaning that there, if you look at them, they look like the Michelin man. Okay. They look swollen and puffy. So they have a edematous extremities. They have ascites or a patomegaly. They have crackles on their lungs. They have big whopping pulmonary edema and pleural effusions because they have so much total body water. Okay. So in other words, they look hypervolemic. They look edematous, but the amount of fluid in their body is increased, but the amount of actual fluid in their vascular system is low. So this is what we call low effective arterial blood volume in patients who look hypervolemic. I hope that makes sense. So if a patient's like super dehydrated because they've been puking, pooping, or peeing nonstop, 
that patient won't look like the Michelin man. They won't have a lot of pulmonary edema, interstitial edema, jugular venous distension, a lot of hepatomegaly and ascites. They'll look dry. They'll have dry mucous membranes. So it's important to realize that if a patient's hypervolemic, their lungs will have maybe pulmonary edema, pleural effusions. They'll have big swollen edematous extremities, jugular venous distension, moist mucous membranes possibly. So they'll look hypervolemic, but the total volume of fluid that they have in their vessels is actually lower than it should be. That's called a low effective arterial blood volume. If you have a low effective arterial blood volume, what did I tell you that does? Stimulates ADH production. ADH then goes to your kidneys, reabsorbs tons of water into your vascular system. Your water goes up and does what to your sodium? Dilutes down the sodium and causes hyponatremia. So the question is, is what are some of these diseases that lower your effective arterial blood volume? Well, one is cardiac um, kind of output drops. So if a patient has a reduced cardiac output from congestive heart failure, if you're not able to get blood out of the heart, then what happens is some of the fluid can back up into your left lung or back up into the left atrium and then back up into your lungs, causing pulmonary edema and pleural effusions. So you can have a high pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, or it can back up into the right atrium and cause it to lead to a high central venous pressure, which causes a lot of fluid to accumulate in the abdomen, the legs, or in the jugular vein, causing jugular venous distension. So in those situations, they're not getting a ton of blood out of their heart, but the fluid is backing up into their systemic or pulmonary circulation. So that's why they look hypervolemic, but the total volume of blood that's getting pushed out of their left ventricle into the aorta, into the arteries is lower. And that's what triggers this process. Another one is cirrhosis. So if patients have liver failure and they have portal hypertension, portal hypertension causes the liver to make these like vasoactive compounds that try to dilate your, your splanchnic circulation. And what it does is if you dilate the splanchnic vessels, it actually does lower the effect of arterial blood volume. So when you dilate them, now you got these big vessels and they're not properly filled. And so that lowers the effect of arterial blood volume, triggers ADH production, reabsorbs more water across the kidney, and then again, dilutes down your sodium. Another thing is there's two diseases that have a similar effect. So cirrhosis not only can cause this via portal hypertension, causing, again, low effect of arterial blood volume, but it also can do it via another process. So cirrhosis and nephrotic syndrome and cirrhosis, they don't produce albumin and nephrotic syndrome, they pee out albumin. So they're losing albumin in their vasculature. Albumin holds on to water. My friends, if you can't keep water in the vascular system, it leaks out into the interstitial spaces into your cells and you have less fluid in your vascular system. And that again can lead to this problem of a low effective arterial volume. So you can see this in CHF due to low cardiac output. You can see this in cirrhosis due to two things, splanchnic vasodilation and low albumin. You can see it in nephrotic syndrome due to low albumin. And you can see it in one more disease that will cause you to become hypervolemic. And that's severe end-stage renal disease. So if a patient has advanced renal failure, where they're almost to the point of either needing to get dialysis or they're on like a dialysis like weekly, in that situation, those patients don't produce a lot of urine, okay? And if they're not producing a lot of urine, 
what happens is they can become hypervolemic. They can't eliminate a, enough volume of fluid from their body. If they can't eliminate enough volume of fluid from their body, maybe they're drinking a little bit more than they're putting out. That will cause them to become hypervolemic. And that also, again, can lead to this kind of diluting out their sodium and causing hyponatremia. And also, if you have an advanced renal failure, you have a very difficult time being able to excrete free water. So that's another thing because, again, you have significantly damaged nephrons. So I think in all of this, patient comes in, low sodium, less than 135, serum osms is less than 280 or 285. It's true is ADH on. If ADH is on, it's either hypovolemia from a renal source or a non-renal source, or they're hypervolemic appearing. They look edematous, lungs, extremities, and it's from a heart problem, cardiac uh, CHF, a liver problem, so cirrhosis, a kidney problem such as nephrotic syndrome or advanced renal failure. There's one more situation where ADH is on, and it has nothing to do with the volume status. So in other words, ADH is produced in the, those two ones that we just discussed due to either a low blood volume or a low effective arterial blood volume. Either way, if the stimulus is the same, it's going to cause ADH production in response to that, to dilute out their sodium because it's going to reabsorb more water across the kidneys. This next one is a patient has no volume issue. They're not hypovolemic. They're not hypervolemic. They're euvolemic, normal volume status. They look normal appearing. But in this situation, they have something that's stimulating ADH production undesirably. This one is called SIADH, syndrome of inappropriate ADH secretion. In this situation, there could be so many different reasons for this, my friends. And this is why it gets so confusing. SIADH, you could have this because you're in pain, believe it or not. It could be due because you just got out of a, you just got an operation. So post-op patients often can develop this because they're in pain. They're nauseous. So nausea can also trigger uh, ADH secretion as well. Another situation here is it could be due to an intracranial pathology. So sometimes intracranial pathologies or malignancies can pump out ADH. And that's another thing. Pulmonary diseases, believe it or not, can lead to direct stimulus of ADH production. So pneumonia, COPD, asthma, being on a ventilator, positive pressure ventilation can cause ADH production from the pituitary. Malignancies. Lung cancer is a big one. GI cancer, genital urinary, anything cancer-wise has the ability to create an, uh, an actual inappropriate ADH secretion. And so I think it's really, really important to be able to be aware of these things. And then one more, medications. A lot of people are on them. I'm on them. SSRIs. SSRIs are a very powerful kind of stimulus as well for syndrome of inappropriate ADH secretion. They can also cause ADH production as well and lead to hyponatremia. So this last type of hypotonic hyponatremia where ADH is on is their normal volume. There's nothing, there's not a problem with their volume status that's stimulating ADH production. It's you're triggering ADH production inappropriately with no relationship to the renin-angiotensin aldosterone system, no relationship to a hypovolemia or plasma osmolality. It's just a direct stimulus or there's an ectopic area, a tissue outside of the pituitary that's pumping out ADH. Again, pain, Nausea, post-operative states will trigger this. Malignancies can actually pump out ADH. Intracranial pathologies can lead to this, as well as pulmonary diseases such as pneumonia, ARDS, COPD, asthma, positive pressure ventilation states. So that's important. 
One other condition here, oh, two other conditions, is when a patient has hypocortisolism. So they aren't producing cortisol, so Cushing syndrome, you can see this in, very early kind of adrenal insufficiency, really. So early Cushing syndrome, the patient isn't producing a lot of cortisol. So low cortisol levels do what to your uh, pituitary, your hypothalamus? It tells it to make more CRH. Well, you know when you make more CRH, guess what other hormone you make, guys? ADH. And so because the patient has low cortisol trying to trigger an increase in CRH and ACTH production, it also causes it to pump out ADH as well. So that's another one. And then one last one that's the confusing one, so I just want you to kind of like do your best to remember it, is hypothyroidism. The hypothyroidism mechanism may be kind of a couple fold mechanisms. It may be if you have low thyroid hormone, it tells your hypothalamus to make TRH and TSH and inadvertently it may cause an increase in production of ADH, but it also may be due because um, hypothyroidism may drop your cardiac output and your GFR, which may lead to an inappropriate uh, ADH production via the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. So that is the important things to remember. Okay, so real quick recap, because this is super important. This is the, the bulk of the podcast here. Patient comes in, sodium less than 135, serum osms is less than 280 to 285. If that's true hypotonic hyponatremia, is ADH on? If ADH is on, that means that they're either hypovolemic, they're hypervolemic with a low effective arterial volume, or they're uvolemic. If they're hypovolemic, are they losing volume from their kidneys? So diuretics, cerebral salt wasting, Addison's. Or are they losing it not from their kidneys, their skin, their GIT? Okay, are they third spacing? If it's not a true hypovolemia, so they're losing it from extra-renal renal sources, is it because they're hypervolemic? So they look like the Michelin man. They're swollen. They have pulmonary edema. And it's because they have low cardiac output. They have low albumin or their kidneys can't make any urine because they're an advanced renal failure. So in other words, CHF, cirrhosis, nephrotic syndrome, or advanced renal failure. And then lastly... And again, in that hypervolemic state, it's their problem is that they have a low effective arterial volume. In the hypovolemic state, they're a true hypovolemia. Both of those trigger ADH production, cause them to reabsorb water, dilute out the sodium. And euvolemia, it's not a problem with volume. It's their something is inappropriately stimulating the posterior pituitary to make ADH or an ectopic area is making ADH. This is SIADH. So malignancies, intracranial pathologies, some type of pulmonary pathology, pain, post-op states, nausea, vomiting, drugs or medications that trigger it. And then the other thing is if it's not SIADH, it could be early adrenal insufficiency, low cortisol that try, tries to trigger increased CRH, ACTH production, but also pumps out ADH and hypothyroidism that may also try to trigger TRH, TSH production, but also pumps out ADH. And then on top of the hypothyroidism may drop cardiac output and GFR activate the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, which also stimulates ADH production. Those reabsorb water across the kidneys, dilute out your sodium. Whew. That covers the problems with ADH on. Now you move on to the rare not common, but something to think about where ADH is off. So this is the other part here. So when I send off my labs, I get my BMP, I get my serum osms, I make sure it's real. Once I make sure it's real, I go to the ADH on. We already talked about that one. Let's go to the other part of the process here, which is ADH is off. Not a problem with ADH. It's ADH independent. In this situation, there is two problems. One is you're drinking more water than your kidneys have the capability to pee out. 
And so this is, there's one disease that's called, I used to love the name. They changed it, Rob. I used to call it psychogenic polydipsia, but I think they changed it because they don't like us calling our patients psycho. <laughs> so Yeah, I would think that's a little, a, a bit of a problem. <laughs> yeah, I know. So they changed it to primary polydipsia. Um, and I think another reason why they called it, they decided to get away from psychogenic is because you'd see this a lot in schizophrenic patients. So schizophrenic patients, a double whammy there. I know, I know. <laughs> so the, these schizophrenic patients would be drinking like more than 12 liters of water a day, which I mean, when you think about that, that sounds absolutely insane to think about that. You're having to drink so much water. Um, max amount that your kidneys have the capability to do over an entire 24 hour period is make about 18 liters. So. If you think about that, they would have to drink obviously more than 18 liters over the day, but it, but our kidneys only can make about a liter to a liter and a half in about an hour. So it's easy within that hour span to maybe not imagine. I mean, it's not hard to imagine someone pops down maybe two, three liters within an hour period. And so patients with schizophrenia will be drinking these large volumes of water in a short span time, and they'd overcome the amount that, that we'd make within an hour period. And so you could see that with that primary polydipsia and schizophrenic patients. Also, there was a spat of this... Um, <laughs> probably in the, the the times when they were doing like the fraternity hazing and they'd have all like the people drinking all these massive amounts of water for their fraternities and stuff like yeah, that too. Yeah. So you could definitely see that um, in those situations, like fraternity hazings where you're having them drink like these very large volumes of water within a short time frame, or again, in those schizophrenic patients with primary polydipsia. But the basic pathophys behind this is that they're drinking so much more water than their kidneys have the ability to produce. So you're bringing in all this water, right? You're literally drinking it and it's diluting out your sodium in the blood. Now your kidneys are doing the best that they can to excrete free water now, but they can't keep up with it. So if you're taking in more water than you can pee out, there's another way you dilute your sodium, cause hyponatremia. But I think the the other one that's a little bit more confusing, and I think it's just something that you have to do your best to remember here, is not due to an excessive water intake more than we can pee out. This one's due to a low solute intake. So you see this in elderly, very old individuals who don't have as much hunger and they just like sit there, maybe drink their tea, drink their coffee, and they just munch on like crackers or they munch on toast and stuff all day. So with that situation, they're primarily not getting a lot of proteins. They're not getting a lot of fats, electrolytes, micronutrients in their diet. They're pretty much just getting carbs. And because of that, they're not getting enough solute to allow for them to produce an adequate volume of urine. So like I told you, a normal individual can produce up, produce up to 18 liters of urine a day. Um, if you have a person that's eating a regular diet, a regular amount of proteins, nutrients, electrolytes, et cetera. But now you have this tiny little 95-year-old lady, let's say, who already makes very little urine. On top of that, she's not having an adequate diet of solute to allow for her to produce enough urine. So now if all she's doing is eating crackers and toast and drinking tea and coffee and water all day, now what's going to happen? Her solute intake is low. She's not going to produce enough urine. She may go from making a normal person of her age, maybe makes about, let's just say, I'm making this up, but seven liters of urine per day. And now... She goes to only making two liters of urine per day. It's not out of this world to think that over time she drinks maybe a little bit over that two liter time frame, a little bit every day that she may start diluting out. She may drink enough water, enough fluid to dilute out her sodium because the amount of fluid intake that she's having is more than her kidneys are able to make because of the low solute diet. The only other one that you can see this in is a, is a condition where it's called beer potomania. It's the same concept. 
instead of them like eating crackers and, and, and toast and having some tea and water and coffee, they're just pounding beer just, all day. Just keggers. Yeah. Yeah. Just like 20, 30 beers a day. And when you do that, you're again, guess what? Guess what alcohol is? It's all carbs. And so when you get all these carbohydrates, you're kind of just getting this, they're not getting enough solute in your diet. You're not getting proteins. You're not getting enough fats and micronutrients. There's really no nutritional value to alcohol. And so that low solute intake causes that beer potomania patient to not make a lot of urine. So they're only making, let's say, three liters of urine again. It's not out of this world for us to think if they're putting down 30 beers a day that their their actual intake can overcome their output. And that would lead to them just, again, diluting out their sodium because their intake of free water or fluid is, is going to be over the amount that they're able to produce from their kidneys. And in that situation, these patients will drop their sodium. So that's called beer potomania. And then the one where they're just eating like toast and crackers and drinking tea and coffee, they call that the tea and toast diet. So those are things to think about. And again, I think it's important to remember here that in these situations, the patient's ADH really is off. They're not really kind of like producing tons of ADH, especially in that patient who has, um, the, the, the patient population, such as the primary polydipsia, they're drinking so much water. If your ADH was on, you would re, you would bank all that water and they become excessively hyponatremic. So their ADH has to be off so that they excrete tons of free water into their urine. Same thing with, um, tea and toast diet and beer potomania. Their input is just a teensy bit more than their output because they have low solute, but their plasma osmolality in these particular situations are off. And so you don't want ADH to be on in these patients. So I think that's the really, really important thing to think about. So I think when you come down to the patient having hyponatremia with a truly low serum osmolality, less than 280, some say 285, is ADH on? If it is, are they hypovolemic? Are they hypervolemic with a low effective arterial volume? Are they euvolemic with an inappropriate ADH production due to SIADH, hypothyroidism, or early adrenal insufficiency? Or is ADH off or there's no dependence of ADH whatsoever? It's the patients drinking these massive quantities of water more than their kidneys can actually pee out. Or their solute intake is so low that they're not producing enough urine, but the intake is just a little bit more than their output, and it's enough to dilute out their sodium and drop their sodium. That is the basic pathophysiology and etiologies of hyponatremia. I hope that made sense, Rob. Perfect sense, Zach. That was awesome. But now we have to move into the features and complications. When we get a patient with hyponatremia, how will they present? What are some common findings that you would see? Hit me. All right. So oftentimes it's nothing. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, good, good. We're off to a great start. Know, so sometimes it's just a, it's a lab value, right? So you get it and you're like, oh, okay. So it was 133. You go and you talk to the patient like, no, no, I'm fine. They're sitting there eating a turkey sandwich and they're acting completely normal. So I think that it's important to realize that sometimes this can just be a kind of like incidental lab value with no symptoms. Um, however, as the sodium starts getting lower, so... For example, maybe the sodium starts kind of dropping down towards 120 or less than 120, then you start to see symptoms. So it's really kind of the acute drops, significant drops in sodium that are really what's going to produce symptomatology. Because if, if you think about it, what happens with, you know, your tonicity, it's all about tonicity. And this is going back to like basic biology. So if you have less sodium in your blood, so let's say that you had a normal amount of sodium and you acutely drop your sodium and you drop it down hard. So you go from a sodium of 135 all the way down to a sodium of 119. 
And you do that in a 24 hour period. The tonicity of your body solutions changes drastically. So here's what I want you to think. You have a cell, you put a cell in a solution and you put that cell into a solution that has very little sodium in it and it has some water around it. Where do you think that water is going to want to move? If the sodium in the cell is higher than the amount of sodium that's actually present outside of the cell in the solution, then the water is going to want to go to areas of higher concentration. And so the water will get pulled into the cells. So to get pulled into cells because they have more osmolar like substances in there, glucose, potassium, sodium, other things of that effect. And it's going to yank sodium into the cell super quick. If you yank sodium, I'm sorry, it's going to yank water into the cells super quick. Now, if you pull lots of water into the cells, what do you think is going to happen? Poof, the cells are going to plump up and get big and swell. And so because of that, the cells start swelling and swelling and swelling, that can cause a lot of edema to form. And guess where one area that does not have enough, it, it can't take a joke, my friends, you swell in this area, there's no space for you to swell. Where's that one area? The skull. Skull's not going to allow for you to be able to allow that brain to swell and swell and swell outside of it. And so it can only accommodate a certain amount of kind of swelling. And so one of the most severe and most common complications of patients who develop acute drops in their sodium of like usually less than 120 is it's going to cause massive cerebral swelling, which will lead to a cerebral edema. So patients will develop features of high intracranial pressure, headache, nausea, vomiting. They may develop vision changes. They may develop altered mental status, such as confusion. You know what even the worst thing is, is this lowers your seizure threshold and they may start coming in seizing. And that's what we would see with those patients, the fraternity hazing, where they would drink so much water, 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 water. They dilute out their sodium, boom, massive cerebral edema coming into the ED seizing. So it's a really, really important thing to be able to think about. So again, very common features and complications is usually when it's acute drops in sodium within less than 48 hours because your t- the cells don't have enough time to be able to compensate for that. And so whenever you drop that sodium quickly, the water in your extracellular space floods into your intracellular spaces, puffs those cells up like marshmallows, and then your, your brain can't take a joke. Boom, cerebral edema, high intracranial pressure, risk of herniation, headache, nausea, vomiting, pupillary changes, and then worst case scenario, altered mental status, comatose, and seizures. So those are things, my friends, that you got to watch out for. Um, but that would cover the features and complications, Rob. All right. Next up on the agenda here, we have to move into the diagnostic procedure. So the common diagnostic tests that we have to do in order to diagnose hyponatremia. Yeah. So I don't like to waste a lot of neurons when I have a patient with hyponatremia. Um, I'm a very, I think working um, in the ICU, I am a very um, impatient person. So I just like to order all the labs up front. So, I, so what I do is, is when a patient comes in, let's say that their sodium is, you know, 120, right? And it was an acute sodium drop. Obviously my first focus is kind of like treating them, but I, I want to figure out if it's real first. So that's a really, really important thing. So here's what I do. First thing I do is I already kind of gave you this thing is sodium's less than 135, regardless of the value, check the serum osmolality. If the serum osmolality is between, now here's what I, the literature I use is 280 to 295. 
Okay, but this can vary from source to source, lab to lab, institution to institution. So again, go based upon that, whatever the textbook that you're using. The literature I have is 280 to 295 is the normal serum osms. If it's between 280 to 295, that is a normal serum osmolality. Okay. If the patient has a sodium less than 135 and their serum osmolality is between 280 to 295, this is called isotonic, meaning that it's dissimilar to the actual fluid of the body. So it's an isotonic hyponatremia. If they have an isotonic hyponatremia, that is usually, usually almost always artifactual. And it's usually a, a, a measuring problem with the lab. So when they use these tools and stuff like that to measure the serum osmolality, if a patient has hyperlipidemia, so they have the you know, lipid panel of Rob um, and they have <laughs> an LDL that's sky high or they have triglycerides that are sky high, that will literally throw off the lab panel and give you an artifactual hyponatremia. So please be aware of that. Uh, Zach, I... You know, you always, you always give me a hard time for my, for my, uh, blood panel. First of all, so you all know, uh, my blood be looking good now. <laughs> my blood be looking good. Looking good. I've been working out every day and it's, it's good to go. Now, Zach, if I'm not mistaken, don't you have some blood work to get done that yeah, you keep pushing back and not I, doing? I have not gotten my blood work done, but I'm I also, you did. Yeah. I'm also a hypocrite because I was walking around with a triglyceride of 450. So I don't know if I have anything to say, <laughs> which you've brought down considerably. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think it's really kind of important that whenever you have a patient who has hyponatremia, you check that serum osms. If it is 280 to 295, that's an isotonic hyponatremia. Check a lipid panel, see if they've had a recent one or can consider sending that off. Or if it's not due to a lot of lipids, it can be due to a lot of proteins. And so I've seen this with three disorders, one multiple myeloma, because that produces a lot of those, you know, immunoglobulins. I see this also with Waldenstrom's um, uh, macroglobulinemia, because again, a lot of those uh, plasma proteins. And then I also can see this in patients who have just received IVIG. Okay. So if there is some type of isotonic hyponatremia, check a lipid panel and consider sending off an SPEP and a UPEP because that'll test for any kind of Waldenstrom's or multiple myeloma. Okay. So those are things that I would consider sending off and then looking to see if they had any history recently of IVIG um, for whatever the disease is that they have. Okay. That's the first thing. The next thing is if the serum osmolality comes back and it's greater than 295, that's called hypertonic hyponatremia. This means that there's something else besides sodium in the blood that's pumping up the osmolality and it's causing a false hyponatremia. What is that other thing that's in the blood that's causing the osmolality to go up? That's the question. One is that stupid mannitol. <laughs> that's why I don't give the dang thing. But mannitol, that is one drug that'll definitely has a lot of like serum osmolality cap capability. So it'll definitely jack up your serum osms. The other one, is profound hyperglycemia. I see this all the time. Patient comes in, they have a sodium of 120 something and their sugar is like 500. When you correct that actual sodium, it may actually be somewhat close to normal. And so you can see this in patients with DKA or HHS, hyperglycemic hyperosmolar syndrome, where they have such high sodium, I'm sorry, such high glucose that it actually increases their serum osmolality and produces a pseudo hyponatremia. Okay. 
So they come in, sodium's less than 135. First thing to do before you waste any time is to check a serum osm. If it's high, it's because it may, may have had mannitol. They may have had, they may have hyperglycemia. So check that glucose. Sometimes it can be due to other things. Like if patients are getting like terps and they're using like glycine or sorbitol and stuff like that to kind of irrigate, check and make sure that they haven't had a recent terp. Um, but again, that's, those are the things I would check for. Okay. If their serum osm is isotonic, 280 to 295, check a lipid panel, check a SPEP, UPEP, look to see for any history of IVIG. Okay. If it is less than 280, it's real, real in the field. So if it's less than 280, it's hypotonic hyponatremia. The true problem is they have a low serum sodium. Then if it's hypotonic hyponatremia, how do you go about this? All right. First thing I told you, ADH on, ADH off, right? Here's the way I want you to think about it. In all the disorders where the ADH is on, what does it do to the reabsorption of water? It increases the reabsorption of water from the kidneys. And then what will happen to the kidneys uh, producing urine now? If ADH is on in hypovolemia, hypervolemia with low effective arterial blood volume, or in patients who are euvolemic with an inappropriate ADH secretion, what will happen to their ADH production? It goes up, they reabsorb water across the kidneys, and there'll be less water in the urine. If there's less water in the urine, that means that this urine osmolality, the tonicity of the urine that we're going to produce is going to be very high. It's going to be very like a concentrated urine. So you'll look at it, it'll be like very dark yellow kind of appearing urine because you're trying to reabsorb a lot of that water because the patient's hypovolemic. You need that water. You don't want to pee it out. Or they're hypervolemic with low effective arterial blood volume. You need that water. I need it in my vascular system. Or they have an inappropriate situation which requires them to reabsorb water. But either way, you look at their urine, it'll be concentrated because they pulled a lot of water out of it. So the urine osmolality will be high. And the patients where the ADH is off or it's not the actual kind of on in that situation, are their kidneys reabsorbing tons of water? No, that's not a problem with ADH. The ADH is off, so they're not going to be trying to reabsorb tons of water. So they may have lots of water present in their urine. If there's lots of water present within their urine, it might be more of a dilute urine. And that urine that they're going to produce, if it's clear, kind of dilute, because there's not as much ADH present, what happens to the amount of water in their urine? It goes up. What does that do to the urine osmolality? It decreases it. So right away, I can figure out if my patient has an ADH on hyponatremia or an ADH off hyponatremia. I'll check a urine osmolality. If my urine osmolality is less than 100, that's a low urine osmols, and that means ADH is off. So what are my diagnoses? That means either the patient just got in a fraternity hazing and pounded like three liters of water in an hour, or they have psychogenic or primary polydipsia, schizophrenia, and they've been drinking pounding water all day, or they have low solute intake, and that is tea and toast diet or beer potomania. Boom, diagnosis roasted. And you look into their history. You look to say, hey, buddy, how many beers are you pounding a day? Oh, I'm doing like 60 natties a day. Oh, okay, well, there you go. Okay. Hey, what's your diet looking like? Oh, I have a couple crackers and a toast, and then I just drink, you know, tea and water all day. Oh, okay. Well, there it is. Hey, um, how many, how much water have you been drinking? Oh, yeah, I do like, you know, 16 liters of water a day, but oh, okay. Well, there it <laughs> oh my is. Gosh. So I think it's easy to kind of elucidate from their history based upon what their urine osmols at are. That's the first thing I do. 
Okay. If the urine osmos come back high, meaning it's greater than 300 at least, that means that their ADH is on, their urine's concentrated. And now I have to go and start looking to see which one of the problems is it? Is it a hypovolemia? Is it a hypervolemia with an, a decreased effective arterial blood volume? Or is it some type of inappropriate ADH production, but they're euvolemic? So how do I do that? Look at their volume status. Do when you go to the bedside, do they look like the Michelin man? <laughs> you know, I'm not even kidding. I'll go to my patients. I'll look at the bedside. I'll say, okay, a lot of generalized edema, a lot of hepatomegaly, a lot of ascites, jugular venous distension. Oh, I look at their lungs. They got a lot of pulmonary edema, pleural effusions, a lot of crackles on auscultation. Um, in those particular situations, that patient may appear hypervolemic. Also, Look at other things. Take your ultrasound out. Put it over the IBC. Does it look like it's very plump and big and not moving a lot? Is it very flat, indicating kind of a hypovolemic state? Look at their heart. What's their ejection fraction look like? Is it good? Do they have diastolic dysfunction, systolic dysfunction? I think those are all important things to think about. If they've been in the hospital, look at their intake, look at their output. So if a patient's been getting about three liters of IV fluids per day and their output isn't a lot, again, they may be hypervolemic. Think about other situations. Have they been vomiting? Have they been having a lot of diarrhea lately? Have they just got into a big burn incident? I think history is key here. I have not found this to be helpful, but kudos to those who do. They say looking at the kind of skin turgor, if you kind of pinch the skin and it takes a long time to return back to its natural state, that could be indicative of a volume down status. If their nasal, if their nares and their tongue and their lips and their mucous membranes appear very dry and, you know, not very moist that, or their tongue looks dry and lots of furrows in it, that could be indicative of a volumes down state. Again, take all of these things into consideration. Don't just use one parameter. Okay. If you look at their generalized appearance, generalized edema, so they have peripheral pulmonary edema. They look like the Michelin man. Their intake has been bigger than their output. So they're not putting out a lot of urine. Their IVC is big. Their jugular veins are plump. Okay. And on top of that, they look like they have normal skin turgor, normal mucous membranes. These patients may be a hypervolemic hyponatremic, right? And then what's the other key things, my friends? Use their history. <laughs> hey, do you have a history of CHF? Oh, yeah, yeah. I've had CHF for about 10 years now. Oh, okay, there you go. It could be CHF. And then use your echocardiogram. Put it over their chest. Do they have a low EF? Do they have diastolic dysfunction? That may point towards their problem, okay? Because maybe they have a low cardiac output that's not filling their, their arteries very well, but they have a lot of peripheral and pulmonary edema from that. Ask them, do you have a history of cirrhosis? Yeah, I've had cirrhosis for a while now. Okay, well, maybe it's that maybe that's their problem is they have high venous portal pressures or they have low albumin production. And kids, think about testing their urine, get a urinalysis, check for a lot of protein in their urine. If they have these massive, massive amounts of protein in their urine, they could have nephrotic syndrome. And I think those are all important. And then again, look at their history. Do they have in-stage chronic kidney disease? What's another thing that you could check if a patient has advanced renal failure? <laughs> check a BUN and creatinine. So check a BMP. If you check a BMP and their like creatinine is like 8.9 and their BUN is, you know, also kind of like, I don't know, kind of elevated as well. 
that would all, and then their GFR is terrible. Maybe they have the GFR of like two. If that's the situation, then you know, oh, they have advanced renal failure. They're probably not able to excrete free water and they're very hypervolemic because of that. So again, I think history is key here, but also looking at your volume status on exam. Okay. If you go through that, you find out that they look hypervolemic. And then to elucidate which hypervolemia it is, you utilize a good history and physical exam. You can elucidate that one. If the patient, is their intake has been very little. So they tell you, oh, yeah, doc, I haven't eaten in about seven days. Oh, okay. Hey, yeah, doc, it's a punami down there. I've been pooing all day. Or, hey, yeah, I've been vomiting nonstop. Oh, yeah, I just got, uh, you know, I was in the sun for about 17 hours straight without sunblock. <laughs> and it got, got absolutely demolished. You have an etiology there that would potentially, you know, be your historical feature. But then again, use your exam. What's their intake look like? Have they had very little intake in comparison to their output? So has their output been maybe a little bit more than what they've been taking in? Also look at their mucous membranes. Are they dry? Do they have a lot of um, prolonged or increased skin turgor? Again, pull that ultrasound off. Pull it, put it on the IVC. Does it look super flat? Do they have any peripheral pulmonary generalized edema? No. So these are things to think about. And I think if you look at that, that would tell you based upon your volume status exam and their history, whether or not they're a hypovolemic hyponatremic. The one that's really, really difficult is euvolemic hyponatremia, because this patient may not really give you any obvious signs of volume depletion, and they may not give you any obvious signs of hypervolemia. Which may be like, oh, well, Zach, that's perfect then. They're not going to look like the Michelin man. They're not going to look like a dried mummy. But not all patients present in that extreme manner. Some patients may be very difficult to differentiate. So that's why you need your history. But if a patient doesn't look hypervolemic, they don't look hypovolemic on exam, it's important to think about, okay, could it be SIADH, could it be hypothyroidism, or could it be due to low cortisol? This is where I don't waste a lot of brain. Okay. I don't waste my time. What I do is, is I send off a cortisol and I send off a TSH with reflex. Okay. The reason why is if I send off a TSH with reflex and it comes back that they have severe hypothyroidism, boom, there's likely my answer. If it comes back where their cortisol is like nearly non-existent, boom, I have my answer. And then use, obviously, your clinical exam as well for hypothyroidism and hypocortisolism. But if those come back normal, then I'm left with what, guys? SIADH, likely. So if I think that it's SIADH, then what do I do? Okay. Well, then I look through their history. I look and say, okay, is there is there any medications, SSRIs? Are they in any pain? Are they post-op? Do they have any nausea? Maybe I get a chest x-ray or a CT scan of the head and the chest. Make sure they don't have an intracranial pathology. Make sure that there's no pulmonary pathology. Those are things that I'm looking for to find out what's the potential etiology or trigger behind their SIADH. That's the, that, that's what I'd start off with, okay? So at this point, what have I kind of told you? Check the urinosmolality. If it's low, what does that tell you guys? That tells you that the patient is not producing ADH. It's not on because they're making dilute urine. That's the beer potomania, primary polydipsia, T-toastite. If the, if the urine osmolality is high, that means ADH is on. They're reabsorbing water, not having a lot of water in their urine. That could be hypovolemic, hypervolemic, or euvolemic hyponatremia. Look at their volume status and look at their history. Check a TSH, check a cortisol, and that may lead you in the direction of which is the potential cause. 
Now, there's one other thing that you may be asking. Okay, is there anything else, Zach, that can help me? In other words, can I figure out if the problem is renal or extra renal? So I have a patient who comes in and I don't really, I can't tell if it's vomiting, diarrhea, you know, burns, pancreatitis, or if it's because they have cerebral salt wasting, or if they have some type of diuretic problem, or if it's some type of Addison's disease, what could I do then? Or if I don't know if it's advanced renal failure, I can check a urine sodium. Okay. So here's the next test. So I check a urinosomes. I add on a TSH. I add on a cortisol. I check a volume status. I do a good history. And then I check a urine sodium. If the urine sodium is high, what does that tell me? That tells me that the kidneys can't work in reabsorbing sodium. Either they're not reabsorbing sodium or they're just causing a massive excretion of sodium. Go back to the etiologies I talked to you guys about before. What, what's, uh, what happens in patients who have cerebral salt wasting? <laughs> they waste salt in their urine. Boom. Urine sodium will be high in that one. What's Addison's disease? They don't produce aldosterone. They don't reabsorb sodium and water. So they excrete sodium and water. Boom. Urine sodium's high. And in the last one, diuretics, loop diuretics and thiazide diuretics, they inhibit the sodium potassium two chloride co-transporters or they inhibit the sodium chloride co-transporters. You guys better remember this because we already talked about diuretics. But they inhibit them and cause what? Sodium and water to be lost into the urine. So if the urine sodium is high, what does that tell me, my friends? The patient's either on a diuretic, they have cerebral salt wasting, or they have Addison's disease. How do I find out which one it is? Talk to them. Do they take a diuretic? Boom. Diagnosis is just destroyed. Next one. Is it cerebral salt wasting or is it Addison's disease? How do I figure it out? In Addison's disease, look for what? Well, you're not making aldosterone, so what happens to their sodium? Sodium drops. What happens to the potassium? Potassium goes up. And what else happens in this disease? They get a metabolic what? Well, aldosterone is supposed to cause proton excretion, and that would cause a metabolic alkalosis, but you're not going to actually excrete the protons. So what happens to their protons? It gets retained, so they develop a metabolic acidosis. So look for hyperkalemia, hyponatremia, metabolic acidosis. And then guess what else you can check? An aldosterone level. Okay. If it comes back that their aldosterone is low, their renin is maybe also a little bit out of order. Their potassium is high and they have a metabolic acidosis. Boom. It's Addison's disease. Cerebral salt wasting usually commonly occurs in patients with some type of massive intracranial injury, like a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Okay, so that would be something in your history as well. Plus, patients with cerebral salt wasting, they have a massive, and I mean massive amount of urine production, polyuria, like it's going out of style. Okay, so that's right away. If it's a GI loss, so a punami, vomiting, pancreatitis, their burns, anything like that, their kidneys are working fine. It has nothing to do with their kidneys. They're re, they're re able to reabsorb sodium. So what should be their urine sodium? It should be It should be low to normal. That's not the problem. Then you go to the hypervolemic patient with a low effective arterial blood volume. It's a cardiac output problem. It's an albumin problem. And those situations like CHF, cirrhosis, nephrotic syndrome, does it have anything to do with their kidneys? No. So in those patients, will their urine sodium be high or low? They're able to reabsorb sodium. Nothing is wrong with their kidneys. So in those situations, they will be able to reabsorb sodium. So their sodium should be low. What about the patient with advanced renal failure that can't even pee at all? Do you think that they're going to be able to, uh, you know, help to possibly be able to, they got, their nephrons are jacked. They, aren't, they don't have 
to tubule capacity to reabsorb sodium. So what do you think is going to happen to their sodium? Oh, they're going to pee all that sodium out that they pay, they, they, they actually take in. So because of that, their sodium will be what? High. So they'll have a high urine sodium and advanced renal failure. Then you get to the patient population with SIADH and hypothyroidism and cortisol problems. And those, again, I already told you, check the TSH, check the cortisol. If that comes back, you got your diagnosis. You don't need to waste your time on urine sodium for those patients. But if you think about it for them, are their sodiums going to be high or low, my friends? Again, their sodium should be completely normal or low. Because it's not a problem with the kidneys in these particular situations. It's an inappropriate ADH production. So there's no kidney problem. So again, that's really, really important to think about. Patient comes in, hyponatremia, less than 135, serum osms. Boom. If it's less than 280, it's a true hyponatremia. If it's greater than 295, it's hypertonic, meaning it check for mannitol, check for hyperglycemia. If it's isotonic, 280 to 295, check a lipid panel, check an SPEP, check a UPEP, look for a history of IVIG. From there, is ADH on, ADH off? Check a urine osmolality. If urine osmolality is low, ADH is off. Beer potomania or tea and toast diet or primary polydipsia. Look into their history. If urine osmoles are high, that means ADH is on. So it's either a low volume, a hypervolume with a low effective arterial volume, or it's a euvolemic patient. Look at their volume status. Look at their history. Are they a Michelin man or are they a mummy? Or they do they look normal? That might be one obvious extreme thing. Then check what? A urine sodium. If the urine sodium is high, that means that they are peeing out lots of sodium. That's advanced renal failure in hypervolemic patients. Or it's diuretics, cerebral salt wasting, or Addison's disease in hypovolemic patients. If the urine sodium is low, that means that the kidneys are fine. So if they look hypovolemic, it could be from diarrhea, vomiting, burns, pancreatitis. If it's the hypervolemic patient, it could be CHF cirrhosis, nephrotic syndrome. And if it's the euvolemic patient, it could be SAH, hypothyroidism, and cortisol. What do you do for those? Check the TSH with reflex and check the cortisol. If you've done all of those things (laughs) and you've ruled everything out and then you come down to the last diagnosis of exclusion, that would be your SIADH patient. Whew, that would cover the diagnostic steps. All right. That was quite a lot, but certainly thorough as can be. Yeah. We have one thing left, everyone, and that is talking about the treatment. So let's get right down into it. So when we have a patient who has hyponatremia, I think, again, there's three factors that deter me from or uh, I think compel me, I would say, to treat them acutely and emergently. If a patient has hyponatremia with a sodium less than 120, that, that puckers my butthole a little bit. I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get on them right away. All right. That's one thing. Second thing is if a patient has acute hyponatremia. So I have evidence and they know they develop symptoms and their sodium. I see from their BMPs that they drop their sodium drastically within less than 48 hours, meaning it's an acute hyponatremia. So again, if it's acute hyponatremia, where their symptoms develop less than 48 hours, that's one potential thing. Second thing is if their sodium is less than 120. The third thing is if they are symptomatic. In other words, if a patient develops symptoms that are severe symptoms, and when I'm talking severe symptoms, I'm talking features of cerebral edema. So seizures is one big thing. 
um, cerebral edema features. So a lot of like severe headaches, nausea, vomiting, pupillary defects, you know, impending herniation types of problems. I'm going to treat that. And if I want to add in a fourth problem, I would say it's the acute patient who develops symptoms, who has a low sodium and has a intracranial pathology. In other words, they have a big stroke that they have. Okay. They have a big stroke, a big, uh, kind of ischemic stroke. Now they already have a brain pathology that already, you know, puts them at high risk for high intracranial pressure. You add hyponatremia on top of that, that worsens it. They have a bleed. They have some type of big mass in their brain or something of that effect. All of those really scare me. Okay. So acute symptomatic hyponatremia within less than 48 hours, symptoms that are severe, seizures, altered mental status, features of high intracranial pressure, sodium less than 120, and then some type of brain substrate. In other words, they have a mass in their brain. They have a recent stroke. They have a, a big bleed, some type of process that already makes them susceptible to high intracranial pressures, or they have a history of epilepsy. That's, that's another big one. If they have a history of epilepsy, you lower their sodium acutely. They're going to, they're going to seize on you. So just be aware of those things. If I see that I'm treating them emergently and generally that's including hypertonic saline. So when they come to my unit, what I will do is, is I will start them off on a 3% hypertonic saline bolus. So I will bolus them with a hundred cc's, sometimes 150 cc's. Usually I do a hundred cc's though. So I'll hit them with a hundred cc, 3% bolus. And I'll do that over about 10 minutes. If they're still symptomatic, they're still seizing. They still have features of high intracranial pressure. They're still symptomatic. I will hit them with another 100 cc, 3% bolts over 10 minutes. If they're still symptomatic, still seizing, still having problems of high intracranial pressure, I'll hit them with one more 100 cc, 3% bolts over 10 minutes for a max of 300 cc's. That is how I would do acute hyponatremia. Now, the next thing that you're probably like, Zach, wow, that's a, that's a lot. Couldn't you really push their sodium up really high and then cause them to just fracking like shrink their brain and develop with cerebral demyelination syndrome or osmotic demyelination syndrome? That's possible. And so what you want to do is, is whenever you're hitting these patients with hypertonic saline this much is you want to monitor their sodium very closely. Here's the thing with patients who have acute hyponatremia, less than 48 hours, symptomatic sodium less than 120 and an intracranial pathology, you don't often have osmotic demyelination syndrome as common in that patient population. Plus, here's the thing. Patient comes in seizing with cerebral edema at risk of herniation. I'm going to push their sodium up as high as I can acutely. And then over a 24-hour period, I just have to make sure that I don't push their sodium over 8 milliequivalents per liter over a 24-hour period. So in other words, they come in with a sodium of 120. They're symptomatic. They're seizing. They have brain hernia, a risk of brain herniation. I'll hit them with a hypertonic bolus, hypertonic bolus, hypertonic bolus. Let's say I push their sodium from 120 to 130. I push it up over the eight milli equivalent portion. Guess what I'll do then? I'll start trying to bring that sodium back down to 128 or lower just a little bit so that I don't cause them to be at risk of osmotic demyelination syndrome. How will I do that, Zach? I can give them something called DDAVP. You know what DDAVP is? It's basically, it's basically ADH and ADH will bind onto the kidney tubules and reabsorb some water, dilute the sodium down a little bit. Doesn't that sound pretty interesting? So I can use that as a way of being able to prevent 
overcorrection with hypertonic scaling because the risk of osmotic demyelination syndrome comes whenever you try to correct the sodium too rapidly. Generally in chronic patients, you don't want to go over six for acute patients. I don't really want to go over eight. So some literature will say six to eight milliequivalents per liter over a 24 hour period. Don't go above that because you risk osmotic demyelination syndrome. So patient comes in seizing risk of herniation acutely symptomatic sodium 120. I will give them hypertonic saline boluses if I push them up above the eight milliequivalent mark acutely. I just have to make sure that I bring it down to less than eight over the neck, that 24 hour period. So I'll use DDAVP or free water down the, down the gut tube and try to bring that sodium back down to where it's less than eight for that 24 hour period. Okay. So that means you got to monitor that sodium very, very frequently. That means that you're probably going to have to get BMPs like every two or every four. I, I generally do like every four hours. The key thing is just being aware and monitoring that sodium very, very closely. Don't mess around with it. Don't let that sodium rise over the eight middle equivalent mark for a 24-hour period because you risk osmotic demyelination syndrome. Acutely, pump it up. But then afterwards, try to be able to bring it back down a little bit. Okay. I hope that makes sense for the acute, symptomatic, seizing, high ICP type of patient. The other thing that I want you guys to think about here is, you know, this, this, this question of osmotic demyelination syndrome. There's many risk factors. The, one of the most common ones is obviously a high rate of sodium rise. So if you pump the sodium up more than eight milliequivalents, you know, uh, uh, over a 24 hour period, you do risk osmotic demyelination syndrome, because what happens is the patient was hyponatremic. When they become hyponatremic and you flush a bunch of sodium into their blood, you yank water out of their cells, which shrinks the actual myelin down and can lead to demyelination of the axons in the ponds, leading to a pontine kind of like demyelination, which causes like dysarthria, dysphagia, diplopia. It can even put them into a locked in syndrome, which is absolutely fearful. So be careful of that. But here's the other thing that I really want you to realize In patients with osmotic demyelination syndrome, the highest risk factors is not just the sodium rise, but chronic hyponatremia. So for that patient who has chronic hyponatremia, more than 48 hours they've been dealing with hyponatremia, do not force their sodium up over that goal because you will cause osmotic demyelination syndrome. And the reason why is they had time to compensate. If over 48 hours, they've pumped some of the sodium out of their cells, they've pumped potassium out of their cells, they pump glucose out of their cells, and then they pull water out of their cells to compensate. So they've already compensated. Then you go around and then guess what? You pump their sodium up, you're gonna pull more water out of their cells even more, and that will demyelinate those axons. So don't do that in a patient with chronic hyponatremia. Don't go too quickly on these patients. Those are the most high risk. If they're acute, you don't have as high of a risk because they haven't had time to compensate. Another one, hypokalemia. Believe it or not, when you give lots of potassium, guess what it does to your sodium? pumps the sodium up. So if you're giving a lot of like sodium to these patients, especially hypertonic saline, and you're pushing their sodium up, and then you're having to give them a lot of potassium replacement because their potassium is like two, guess what? That'll also increase their sodium and then increase the risk of overcorrecting. Another one is patients with cirrhosis, malnutrition. Those are also patients, beer potomania. Those are patients who are super high risk for overcorrection. So just be careful in that patient population that you don't let them go over that six to eight milliequivalent mark over a 24 hour period and watch their sodiums closely. Can't say this enough. So 
I think that's the big, big crux of this kind of like discussion here with hyponatremia. They come in acute, symptomatic, seizing, high ICPs, all of those features. And again, sodium like less than 120, don't worry about osmotic demyelination syndrome. You can pump their sodium up quickly. Just make sure that you try to get it back down to less than eight over a 24-hour period with DDAVP or free water. Okay, and then checking those levels of BMPs maybe every four hours. Don't risk dosmotic demyelination syndrome, okay? Watch closely and be super cautious in patients with hypokalemia, chronic hyponatremia, cirrhosis, malnutrition, and beer potomania, and don't put it up over eight. I like to say six to eight milliequivalents per liter over a 24-hour period. One last thing, after you've done that, so you've treated the symptomatic patient, or maybe they're not acutely symptomatic and they don't require these like hypertonic saline boluses. So either you've, you've treated the acute problem, symptoms are gone, or they never had that severe symptoms that required this hypertonic saline, right, acutely, then what do you do? So if it's a patient who has hypovolemic hyponatremia, their volume down. Give them some fluid back, baby. So give them some normal saline, but here's the thing. For the love of goodness, please be careful because I've seen this way too often where a patient comes in, they've been vomiting, they had diarrhea, they were on some type, they were hypovolemic for some reason, they get about two liters of fluid, their sodium goes from 130 to 145. And then nobody watched their sodium for an entire 24 hours. They checked a BMP 24 hours later and their sodium went up from 130 to 145. Thank God the patients are okay, but you risk what? Osmotic demyelination syndrome with pumping it up over eight, six to eight over a 24 hour period. So whenever you give these patients who have hypovolemic hyponatremia back fluids, preferably with this patient population, just give them normal saline. Give them like some maintenance fluids, maybe a a couple liters of fluid. But here's the thing. Monitor their BMPs every four hours and then prevent them from overcorrection. Don't let them go over eight in a 24-hour period. And then how do you prevent them from overcorrecting with normal saline? DDAVP or free water. Okay. What about the hypervolemic patient with a decreased effective arterial blood volume? So you have patients who have CHF, cirrhosis, nephrotic syndrome, advanced renal failure. And advanced renal failure, there's nothing I can really do about that. I guess kidney transplant or hemodialysis, but cirrhosis, liver transplant, you could probably even, you know, nothing too great for that one. But for the heart failure patient, there is something truly beneficial that I can do for them. What is that, my friends? Loop diuretics. Well, I, I should actually be more careful. These patients are hypervolemic, right? So one of the things I can do is I can try to free water restrict them. So I can restrict them to a certain amount of fluid that they can drink per day. So maybe instead of them drinking more than two liters of fluid or three liters of fluid, I restrict them to about a liter of fluid per day. That's kind of sometimes difficult, but you can try to free water restrict them. If free water restricting them doesn't help and they still appear hypervolemic, what is a way that I can get rid of free water and then pump up the actual sodium because I'm getting rid of some of the free water in the actual interstitial spaces and from the vasculature? Do you guys know? Loop diuretics. 
<laughs> okay. So sometimes what I will start off with doing is I'll try my best to free water restrict the hypervolemic patient. If that's not working, then I will give them lube diuretics to try to be able to remove some of the excessive pulmonary and peripheral edema and remove their increased total body water, mobilize some of that excessive fluid, get some of the free water out in their urine, and then try to be able to kind of improve and increase their sodium. Sometimes you may, may need to consider um, uh, other situations. I don't commonly utilize this, but sometimes you can do 3% hypertonic saline in these patients, but I wouldn't do that. I would just free water restrict them. If that doesn't work, loop diuretics will mobilize some of the excess fluid, remove their hypervolemia and increase their sodium. For the cirrhosis, you can continue, you can consider or I'll, you can consider albumin. I don't, for the, you know, patients with cirrhosis and nephrotic syndrome, you can consider giving them albumin to try to keep water inside of their vascular system and prevent them from having a lot of like interstitial kind of fluid and, you know, hypervolemia. I don't find that to be very beneficial though. Um, the other thing that I have found to be somewhat beneficial is urea. Um, I, I, I kind of like it. Uh, they, they, they use this sometimes where you can take urea and it's an effective osmol. And what it does is it actually causes you to pull out of water out in your urine. So it's kind of similar to a loop diuretic. So it pulls out a lot of water and that can actually drop your, you know, total, uh, you know, vascular water. And so that'll actually help to be able to bring the sodium up. So I find that to be pretty interesting as well. I just wouldn't use that in cirrhosis if they already have like hepatic encephalopathy. So that's the things I would consider. So again, for the hypervolemic patient with hyponatremia, I would free water restrict them. And if it's a heart failure patient or a cirrhotic patient, I would consider a loop diuretic. And if they can tolerate it, especially a patient with um, heart failure, I would consider oral urea if they could tolerate it. Another one, just as an aside, just for those of you out there working in some type of you know medical world, lactulose. <laughs> if the patient will allow you, uh, it causes them to poop out a large volume of water. Um, and so that also can kind of pump their sodium up as well, especially in the cirrhotic patient with hyperaminemia. All right. So if they're not hypovolemic, they're not hypervolemic with an increased effective, I mean, a low effective arterial volume, then we go to the last case. The last case is the patient who is euvolemic. Okay. So euvolemic, but they have an inappropriate production of ADH undesirably. So one is hypothyroidism. If their TSH with reflex shows that they have hypothyroidism, treat their hypothyroidism. All right, simple. If they have low cortisol, early adrenal insufficiency, treat their early adrenal insufficiency. Done. The last thing is if you've come down to it and you've determined through the last exclusionary diagnosis that they have SIADH, you treat the cause of their SIADH. Is it pain? Give them pain meds. Is it nausea? Treat their nausea. Is it due to a drug that's actually causing this? Discontinue the drug. Is this a, a problem like a pneumonia process that I can kind of clean up and treat that? That's good. But if it's something that's not an easily and a quickly reversible cause, like I can't, you know, I can't remove a lung tumor right away. I can't get rid of a big Goomba that's present in their skull cavity. So if it's a malignancy or if it's some type of, um, you know, intracranial pathology, there's not much I can do about those particular situations. So, 
whenever you've tried to treat the underlying cause of their SADH and they still have hyponatremia, then that's when you move on to the next thing. So the next thing that I would do is I would free water restrict them. Okay. Cause patients who have SADH, they're producing ADH. Every drop of water that they drink, their kidneys will bank all of that water and they will drop their sodium. So this is, <laughs> I absolutely hate this. Um, I think there must be like a, a rule in emergency medicine that any patient who comes into the emergency department has to get like three liters of fluid before they come to the hospital, like into the unit. So uh, a lot of the times when patients have hyponatremia, I would be very careful unless you guarantee know that they have hypovolemic hyponatremia. Um, giving them normal saline for their hyponatremia is not the best thing because guess what it can do to a patient with SIADH? So normal saline has salt in it. Yes, that sounds great. But guess what else it has in it? Water. You give them IV normal saline. Some of that sodium will stay there. But guess what they're going to do with all of that water? They're going to bank all that water because all the ADH is going to reabsorb all the water across their actual kidneys into their blood. And guess what they will do? They will outsmart you and they will drop their sodium. Sometimes I see this and it kind of helps me. I guess that's the only thing I can say that thank you to those ED practitioners. But um, whenever a patient has SIADH and you give them a normal saline bolus, I'll see that their sodium will go from 120 to 118 or 117. So I'll see their sodium drop, which is not a great thing because guess what? They may come up to me seizing now, but that's the concept to understand is that with patients who have SIADH, you need to free water restrict them. They will bank every drop of water that they drink or that they get in via an IV fluid. Okay. That is the big thing. The next thing that you can also consider here is that with these patients, you if, if they are persistently as having hyponatremia despite free water restricting them, or you just, sometimes free water restricting these patients is like just, it's honestly torture and they can't tolerate it. Telling a patient to only, they can only drink one water of like one liter of fluid a day may be like torture. So sometimes patients may not respond to that. So in that situation, the next thing we can do is consider hypertonic saline if they can't tolerate free water restriction or they're not getting better with it. So hypertonic saline, we'll put them on what's called a 3% hypertonic saline infusion. And when we put them on this infusion, we will all, that'll increase the sodium. And then here's another thing that we do. <laughs> so, so you'll increase the sodium with the hypertonic saline, and then you give them a loop diuretic. And you know what the loop diuretic does? It causes them to pee out free water. So they pee out free water, which will increase their sodium relatively. And then you give them hypertonic saline, which will increase their sodium as well. Just make sure that you're careful and you don't kind of overcorrect them. So again, prevent overcorrection with what again? DDAVP and free water, but just monitor their sodium more frequently than every 24 hours. And then they call it a day. Just keep an eye on that. Again, another thing that I like to do is if I have an SADH patient, just like that heart failure patient who I free water restricted, didn't get better. I gave them a loop diuretic, tried that. Maybe it's improving, but they're still not at goal. I use the oral urea. Same thing. I like to use oral urea in SADH patients a lot because I find that it's way more effective than the loop diuretic and hypertonic saline combo. So I don't have to kind of watch them kind of becoming overcorrected. I don't have to like... Because sometimes when you do this, you give them the 3% hypertonic saline 
increase their sodium. You give them the loop diuretic, increase their, their sodium, and then you overcorrect them. And then you got to give them free water or DDAVP to bring them back down. I just find that that's really difficult. So one thing that I like to do is I like to give oral urea and it'll just cause them to excrete free water into their urine. And again, I find that that will be a more elegant way of being able to improve and increase their sodium without a lot of overcorrection. So that's one thing I'll do. For refractory SIADH, please, for the love of goodness, try to stay away from these drugs. Also, they will break the bank. You won't be able to pay your mortgage if you use these, but Vaptans. Uh, Vaptans are another drug that you can consider in a patient who is, you've tried free water restricting them. You've tried the hypertonic saline and loop diuretic combo, or if you didn't like that one, you tried the oral urea and they're still refractory, still hyponatremic. You can try something called um, Vaptans and they're basically an ADH antagonist. So they block ADH. You don't reabsorb water. You just pee out straight water. So you kind of put them into a diabetes insipidus state. And so then they just pee out free water and their sodium can shoot up. So just be very careful with that patient population because you can quickly overcorrect them. Um, and it can just definitely be a problematic drug sometimes. Also, just crazy expensive. So something to watch out for with those Vaptan drugs. But... That covers hyponatremia, Rob. All righty. That covers hyponatremia. It was awesome. It was a beast. Thank you, Zach, for really just doing this topic of justice. No, thank you. And uh, engineers, I hope that this topic made sense. I hope that you guys liked it. And uh, thank you. Love you. And as always, until next time. <laughs>